But I'm going to continue um, where I left off. If you guys feel out or lost this morning, I've put part one and part two of this brief series up on the audio podcast on our website, fpgm.org. And so if you need to go back and kind of catch up, we're in Daniel chapter 9. As we study the book of Revelation that I think is very relevant to our time, I've gone back to this prophecy in Daniel because it ties directly into what's happening where we left off in Revelation 6. After Christ raptures His church and the Lord begins to pour out judgment upon the world, God turns His attention again to the people of Israel to wake them up so they will recognize their Messiah. And Daniel's 70-week prophecy deals with this specifically. Particularly the 70th week which equals the seven-year tribulation of Revelation. So that is why it is important. And I think it's also important because this prophecy, along with others in the Scriptures, can be seen in history to have been fulfilled, fulfilled part of it. 69 weeks of the 70 weeks are done. They're in the past. Right now we are in a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. And that 70th week of years seven years, is in the future. And we can see the fulfillment of 69 weeks precisely in history. And what this demonstrates, as do many other fulfilled prophecies, is that God's Word, the Bible, can't be just an average man-made book. Fulfilled prophecy is the greatest proof that the Bible is exactly what it claims to be. I want to turn real quickly to the book of Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 46, I'm sorry. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. Listen to what God says here. In effect, He's challenging the people of Israel that doubt Him. He says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like Me. And then verse 10, He tells us, He describes Himself, God. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So God says, I declare the end from the beginning and I declare ancient th- from ancient things that are not yet done. In other words, God says, I can tell the future. I can declare the future before it happens. And then exactly what I say is going to happen, happens. My counsel will stand. And if you go into verse 11, God talks about the coming of the Persian kingdom under Cyrus that would happen and overthrow Babylon. Okay? This was prophesied in a time when Babylon wasn't even a prosperous kingdom. Assyria still dominated the ancient Near East. And God goes on in verse 11 to talk about a ravenous bird from the east that will exercise his counsel. That's King Cyrus, the same one he called by name in chapter 44. 150 years, 120 years before he was born, God called King Cyrus of Persia by name. Fulfilled prophecy. It it declares that the Bible can be trusted. Time and time again. Do you realize that there were more than 48 details, not general principles, but details about the life and work of Jesus the Messiah prophesied hundreds of years before His birth. That's why the Jews have such a hard conflict when they read Isaiah 53. They know it's talking about Jesus. 
even though they refused to accept that he's the Messiah. It was prophesied that they would turn their back on him. It tells us where Jesus or Messiah would be born in Bethlehem more than uh, 700 years before Christ. Jesus would be born from the tribe of Judah. There were 12 tribes in Israel. That was prophesied 1,800 years before Christ at the hand of Moses. It talks about a star would indicate the first coming of Messiah. That was the star in Bethlehem. A scepter would indicate His second coming. The first part was fulfilled in about 4 B.C. 1,800 years after the prophecy was given. Zechariah tells us that Jesus Christ the Prince would come into Jerusalem on a donkey while the people cried Hosanna in Zechariah four or five hundred years before Christ. It happens. That's what terminates the end of the 69 weeks. So the Bible is full of things. Jesus was prophesied as one who would be crucified. Psalm 22, written a thousand B.C. by King David. That was more than 250 years before the Romans even invented crucifixion. And yet it was written that Jesus would have His feet and His hands pierced Zechariah the prophet, God told the people of Israel, the day is coming when you will look upon me whom you've pierced. So these fulfilled prophecies are what distinguish the Word of God from any other religious book. I mean, when you put the Quran or the Book of Mormon beside the Bible in this respect, it's like taking a little anthill and fashioning it beside Mount Everest. The Quran says the earth is shaped like an egg. It's not true. We know that. The Quran says the sun sets in a muddy pond. Nope. The Quran says that life comes from a droplet that proceeds from a man's backbone. Nope. The droplets that come from a man that give life don't come from his backbone. They come somewhere below that. So the Bible, when it declares the future, shows itself true. This happens precisely in history. And therefore, the unfulfilled prophecies we can trust are going to happen literally and precisely. And this prophecy in Daniel is amazing when it comes to how precise it was fulfilled. And that's why it's worth looking at. Now, fulfilled prophecy is the greatest proof that the Bible is true. Now, we can receive that or we can reject it. Truth isn't dependent upon whether someone accepts it. I can refuse to believe that 2 plus 2 is 4, or I could refuse to believe that the sun is shining outside. It doesn't change the fact that the weather's great today and that 2 plus 2 is 4. Mathematics proves there's absolute truth. Fulfilled prophecy does too. But it's interesting because the Bible is not a religious book. Let me again emphasize to everyone that there's a difference between religion and the message of God's Word. I think people don't understand. They just think Christians are just another religion Jesus is just one way for some and not, one way, and, not, and not for others. But let me remind you that there's a big difference between religion and the message of the Scriptures, the Gospel. First of all, religion is good advice. It's good advice. The Gospel is good news. There's a difference between good advice and good news. Religion says obey. Do this, do that, do this. Whether it's pray to Mecca five times a day, walk around the Buddhist stupa as many times as you can, spinning the prayer wheels in the early morning, going to church every Sunday, putting money in the offering plate. Do these things. Obey and maybe at the end of all things God will accept you. That's religion. 
But the Gospel, the Word of God says that because of what Jesus has done, God accepts us at the beginning and then empowers us to obey. If we'll receive Christ, repent of our sins, God accepts us based on Christ and then gives us His Holy Spirit that we might obey. So the Gospel is, you are accepted by Jesus Christ, therefore I give you power to obey, God says. Religion says, do this in your own power and maybe you'll be accepted. Religion is morality earned. You know, Buddha at the end of his life, the la his last words were, oh, I didn't make it. Those were his last words. I didn't make it. I did not attain enlightenment. Morality earned. We can't earn favor with God because God's goodness is perfect. We can't measure up. But the gospel is not morality earned, it's morality received. <coughs> Jesus, God in the flesh, was perfect. He earned the right to provide our salvation because He was morality perfected. And the Bible says, as many as receive Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. Receiving Christ is receiving His righteousness. It's morality received, not earned. Religion is excessive pressure to perform. Very religious people are some of the most unhappy, <coughs> sorrowful people on the planet. Ask Ricky. He just came back from a land of dead religion. You guys went to Nepal a few years ago. You saw dead religion. Go to a Hindu funeral where there's no hope. All of these rituals, it does no good in the day of death. But the gospel is not pressure to perform. It's already performed. Because Jesus performed the sacrifice on the cross for our sins and then rose from the dead, we can be set free from the pressure to perform. Set free. Jesus said in John 8.36, If the Son shall make you free, you'll be free indeed. Guys, the gospel is freedom from the bondage of religion. Don't make the mistake in thinking that Christianity is just religion. It's not. I'm not a religious person. When I go out and preach, sometimes people ask me, what religion are you? And It's my friend. Jesus Christ freed me from the bondage of religion. And so, the Bible is not blind faith. The Bible has fulfilled prophecy. It wasn't written by one man. God used more than 40 different authors from various segments of society over a 1,500 year period to put together His Word. They were like the pens in His hand. The Bible says that the, the, script, the prophecy wasn't given in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Spirit of God. And so what you have is a progressive unfolding that never contradicts itself and is full of prophecy uttered many, many years before time and then shown to be fulfilled in history with regard to Jesus, the rise and fall of kingdoms, the nation of Israel. I already talked about how 1948 fulfilled a very specific prophecy in Isaiah 66 about a nation being born in a day. Israel became a nation again. So we can rest in those fulfilled prophecies and we can look forward to the soon coming ones. All the signs of Christ's coming are here as written in the Scriptures. We need to be ready. The Gospel is not about... Performance, it's about receiving. It's not about seeking God, it's about God seeking us. And He did when He sent Jesus Christ. And little guys, children, I just want you to understand that Jesus Christ died for you just like He died for us. But mommy and daddy can't make you right with God. Can't do it. 
Mommy and daddy can't pray you into heaven. Mommy and daddy can't make you understand these things, but we can teach you about the Bible. And the Bible tells us this is how we're saved. This is how we can be made right with God. It says to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus. That means to acknowledge that Jesus died for our sins, that we can't be good enough. And then it says to believe in our heart, that's faith, that Christ is risen from the dead and we'll be saved. And then the Bible says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not going to church or putting money in an offering plate. It's not walking down an aisle or circling a temple. It's not going to Sunday school. It's confessing with our mouth, repentance, acknowledging our sin before God. It's believing in our heart, putting our trust in the work of Christ on the cross. His blood shed for our sins, His resurrection. Trusting in that, not in our own righteousness. Believing in our heart, faith, that brings salvation. Repentance toward God and faith in Christ. And if you don't understand those things that I'm saying right now, guys, ask the Lord to give you understanding. He will. When Samuel, the young child in the temple, was hearing from God, or he thought somebody was calling him. He thought it was Eli, the priest. And he went and said, Eli, what do you want? And he's like, I'm not calling you. I'm sleeping. Go back to bed. After it happened two or three times, Eli recognized it was God calling young Samuel. And Eli said, you know what? Next time you hear God calling you, you just say, Lord, here am I. I'm listening. And that's the best advice I could give you kids is when God calls you, just to say, I'm listening and to do what He says. And He's going to tell you exactly what He says in His Word. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And everyone else, you know, Jesus said, unless you have the mind of a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Childlike faith. Repent, acknowledge our sin, faith, believe, and trust. That's the message of the Bible. That's not religion. And we can trust it to be true. I can prove it to be true because Christ Jesus has changed my life. Many in here could give a similar testimony. I played dead religion for years. Punched the church attendance card. and Never had any peace. My heart was rebellious and wicked. But the Lord saved me. And these things, that's the greatest proof I can give you. But when we study the Scriptures and see the fulfilled prophecy, we can rest assured that these things are true. Because everything that's written takes place. And if we're willing to open our eyes or allow the Lord to open them, we can see these things. So I don't mean to get off topic here, but again, I want to emphasize we're studying this prophecy because it proves the Bible to be accurate. And if it's accurate in something as unlikely as this, how much more accurate is it in the things that Jesus declared and then proved to be true when He rose up from the grave? There were more than 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Men whose lives were changed. Men who gave their lives for that truth. No man would give his life for something he knew to be false. If the disciples stole Jesus' body like the Jewish people say to this day, why would they foolishly give their lives for something they knew not to be true? Just like you never see men, you never saw men like Bin Laden or Yasser Arafat flying the planes. It was always getting someone else to do the terrorist activities. Now if they really believe that dying for jihad puts you in heaven with 70 virgins, I would think that Bin Laden would have been first in line in those Twin Tower planes. Instead, they broke, the U.S. military broke into his house in Pakistan while he was looking at homosexual pornography on a computer and he cried like a baby before they sent him on to the judgment seat of God. So it was hypocrisy. 
But the disciples of Jesus, they gave their lives. Paul the Apostle hated the Gospel. He was on his way to put Christians in prison in Damascus. And he encountered Christ and his life was changed and he became a bold preacher and he gave his life for the Gospel. Proof. Eyewitness proof. Anyway, I, I sound like I'm preaching on the streets to the lost, but we all need to be reminded of the gospel from time to time because that's where our faith and trust is. But let's turn to Daniel. Man, I'll, my introductions are so long. I just, I'm sorry. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 9. And I just want to review and read these passages real quick. Daniel, uh, would you read Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27? This is the 70 weeks prophecy. And let's just do that for review. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Do therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, for not for himself, but not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until, until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Okay. That's the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Remember, Daniel is being told by the angel, this regards your people and, and your city. So the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. This is referring to God's prophetic clock in terms of Israel. It's a period of 70 weeks. That word weeks means sevens. Seventy sevens in Hebrew. Week is a term we use to, to encompass the number seven. So 77s, the context show us that this is talking about years. So 77s, God had 490 years purposed in which He was going to accomplish those six things in verse 24 with regard to the people of Israel. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision, and to anoint the most holy. Now, have those things been accomplished in the people of Israel? Or have they, are they still rejecting Christ as Messiah? So those things have not yet been accomplished. So that tells us these 70 weeks are not complete. But you can read these things I've made here at the beginning. They kind of map it out for you. The Bible says that from the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, which I believe was given in 454 B.C., King Artaxerxes of Persia, it's written about in Nehemiah 2, unto Messiah the Prince would be 69, 7 and 62, which is 69 weeks of years. That is 483 years. 
Okay? So that commandment was given in 454 B.C. and I'm going to explain that. Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's when Messiah was prince for the one time during His first coming when the Jews said, Hosanna, blessed is He that comes in the name of the Lord. Palm Sunday. And Zechariah's prophecy was fulfilled. From B.C. 454 until A.D. 30, Palm Sunday was exactly 483 years. Then it tells us that two things would happen after the 62-week period, which also includes the, the seven-week period. During the first seven-week period, 49 years, Jerusalem would be rebuilt again, and it was. If you study history, Jerusalem was rebuilt during the time of Ezra, Ezra Nehemiah, Esther, and it, 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 it strung out for about 49 years or until it was finished, after they had, it had been destroyed by Babylon. After 69 weeks, two things would happen. Messiah would be cut off, but not for Himself. When was Messiah cut off by the nation of Israel? At what? At the cross. So after 69 weeks, Messiah would be cut off, and then it says another event would happen. The people of the coming prince would destroy Jerusalem. Historically, when did that happen? Who destroyed the Jerusalem and the temple? The Romans under Titus. And then the Bible talks about that would begin a war against the Jewish people. Unto the end of the war, there would be desolations. So the 69th week ended with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And since then, there's been a war against the Jewish people by many cultures, many people. If you look at the news today, it's full of anti-Semitism. Even America's turning its back on Israel and blaming them for the problems. Ricky just came from living amongst the Jewish community in South Africa. He saw this. So we're in what I believe is a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. After Jesus Christ was crucified, God's prophetic clock with regard to Israel came to a halt. And then God started a special program, the church. From the time Messiah was cut off until now, God has been building His church. Jesus has been building His church. The church is Jew and Gentile gathered together into one body. It's a mystery. But there's coming a day when the church will be raptured out this gap will finish and the 70th week will, will, will start. That's a period of seven years. One week of years. Seven years. That begins when God's prophetic clock with Israel starts ticking again. And what does it say is, is the indication that that 70th week starts ticking? What exactly will happen? A peace treaty between who? Israel and He. Who is He? The nearest antecedent to the pronoun. The people of the prince that shall come. We know the people were the Romans. And the coming prince or antichrist talked about in Isaiah, I mean, in, in all over the Bible, but in Daniel 6 and 7, will arise. And He will sign a peace treaty with the nation of Israel, which will undoubtedly allow them to sacrifice again on the Temple Mount and rebuild their temple, something they can't do today. But in the middle of that 70th week, the Bible says... This prince will break the commandment and he will go in and desolate the temple and then he'll set himself up as God and command the world to worship him. And if you won't worship him or receive his mark in your flesh, you will not be able to buy and sell. You will be killed. Now these are events that happen after the church. The born-again Christians are raptured out of the world. Woe unto those that are left behind. 
Woe unto all the false Christians who pay lip service to God, but their heart's not right with Him. But this is a mapping of that prophecy. So the 69 weeks are in the past. Presently, at this moment, we are in a gap between the 69th and 70th week. God's prophetic clock with Israel paused. His prophetic clock with the church started. There's coming a time at the rapture when the church's prophetic clock is complete and the clock with regard to Israel and reconciling them to their Messiah begins again. We are in the church age. The 70th week is future. These are some very bold claims that I'm making and you may ask yourself, well, how can you be so sure? I can be sure because history shows us that the 69 weeks were fulfilled exactly from the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem given by Artaxerxes Longamanus, the Persian king, unto Jesus Christ's triumphal riding into Jerusalem was exactly 69 weeks of solar years. It was also 69 weeks of Jewish calendar years. So much so that the very next day, upon the completion of 69 calendar years, from 14 Nisan, about 454 B.C. until 13 Nisan, A.D. 30, the very next day, 14 Nisan, Messiah was cut off. Immediately after the completion of 69 weeks, Messiah was cut off. About 40 years later, in fulfillment of another prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, where he was told to lay on his left side, or one of his sides, for 390 years. That would show the, the length of the, the Jewish monarchy in Judah from David all the way, or from Rehoboam all the way until the last king, Zedekiah, was fulfilled. And then he was told to switch sides and lay on his other side for 40 years. Did you know from the day that the temple veil was ripped into, the crucifixion of Christ, unto the destruction of the city was 40 years? And Jewish tradition tells us that for whatever reason, during that 40-year period, the light on the menorah would, would mysteriously go out every evening. And they couldn't figure out why. And then the door, or would, would, a door in the temple would open. They don't know why. That was that 40 years. Again, fulfilled God's plan and purpose. And then Jerusalem was destroyed and then Israel was scattered. And we're in a period of war. We're in a period of war against the Jewish people. The Jewish people are hated more than any other race. They're a byword amongst the nations, just like the Bible prophesied. We as the church ought to love the Jewish people because God used them to give the Word of God to mankind. Every Bible author was Jewish. Praise God for the Jewish people. And we ought to pray that God will open their eyes. And He will one day. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But anyway, I, I began talking last week about the typical conservative interpretation of the 69 weeks, how they were fulfilled. And these come from a very intelligent genius from the late 1800s, Sir Robert Anderson. He was a, the chief investigator with the Scotland Yard in London. He was saved at an early age during the Irish Revival. He wrote an incredible book called The Coming Prince. And his interpretation is, generally speaking, what most conservative scholars would agree is the proper interpretation of this prophecy. And I summarize here on these pages what that solution involves. Okay? It's a reasonable solution. Unfortunately, I don't think we have to take these steps to make it work. I believe it works 
if historical events date are dated properly. The commandment to restore and build Jerusalem was given in Nehemiah chapter 2. We read that last week. That was in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. Sir Robert Anderson dates this from 445 B.C. Because Artaxerxes came to the Persian throne in 465 B.C. He, was the, he became sole ruler of the, of, the, of the kingdom. Unfortunately, Anderson doesn't take into account that Artaxerxes actually got into the throne nine years earlier because his father, Xerxes, who was defeated by the Greeks in a humiliating defeat, just said, forget this, and retired to private life and spent his days outside the capital city living it up in drunken orgies and wanted nothing to do with the politics. And so his son was put on the throne to manage the kingdom. But Anderson dates from 445 B.C. as the commandment in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. From 445 B.C. to 39 A.D. would give you 69 weeks of years. Sorry. You're really supposed to technically put B.C. after the date and A.D. before the date. That would give you 483 years or 69 weeks of years. Unfortunately, A.D. 39 is too late for Christ. You know, Christ was crucified several years before this. A.D. 39 does not work. And so Anderson looked at this dating from 445 B.C. and said, well, this is close enough in time to the time of Christ that it has to be referring to the crucifixion and it has to be exact. So we have to calculate things a little different. Thus, Anderson came up with what he believed was a 360-day prophetic year. If we count years based on 360 days, instead of 365 with every fourth year being 366, we can solve this problem. Anderson found this 360-day year in Genesis in the time of Noah. Five months were called 150 days. The time of Noah indicates a 360-day year. And then in the book of Revelation, there's reference made to a 360-day year. He concluded that this is a prophetic year. However, I showed last week the problem with this. 360-day years prior to the flood were not prophetic years. They were actual years. There is evidence that when the flood happened, 40 days and 40 nights, I, don't believe, I believe it's history, and I believe you see evidence of this all over the place, including Tibet, where I drove across Tibet with my family, at altitudes of 14 to 16,000 feet. And guess what kind of fossils are littered all over that landscape? Seashells. Fish. And the, and the Tibetan shepherds dig them up and sell them to the tourists. I've got a really neat one at home I meant to bring this morning. I forgot. I paid five bucks for it. These two seashells, very perfectly formed uh, fossils in the Tibetan plateau. Fossils couldn't form unless something instant happened. You know, I, I had to shoot a cat. I, unfortunately, I might get in trouble put this on the internet. They might arrest me for it. This old mangy cat kept coming in my yard terrorizing our cats. And he was missing half of his face. I don't know what happened, but uh, he looked miserable, so I had to put him down. Merciful. A mercy killing, I thought. But I put him down and I tossed his carcass in the woods and I thought, I want to just see what happens. I'm going to take a look at it every day and just see what happens. I'm not kidding you. Two weeks later, there was nothing left of that cat except for just a little piece of the skull and a few tiny bones. There was no fur. There was no blood. There was no entrails. It was all gone. It was gone. 
There's no way that cat could have fossilized. It was gone. And yet we have fossils where animals have their mouths closed. What happens when something dies with the mouth? Why, what do they have to do in a casket at a funeral home to keep that from happening with a person? They sew the mouth shut because the, the, it opens. Why do we have all these fossils with closed mouths if they just laid there dead and gradually became fossilized? No, it was instantaneous. It was instantaneous. That flood, it says, opened up the great fountains of the deep and the heavens came crashing down. And that's why you have piles and piles of fossils gathered together in small locations. Instantaneous. That's why there are fossils where they're in the midst of digesting food and other broadly processes are going on. Evidence after evidence after evidence. Fossilization took place quickly. But I believe that that canopy, that firmament the Bible talks about prior to the flood was like a greenhouse. We don't see that today. And the earth had a singular climate. That's why mammoths have been found in the North Pole with grass in their mouths. I believe at some point the continents separated. All of these things. But when that firmament came crashing down, not rain like we see, you had this great mass of vapor come crashing down toward the earth's center of gravity. What would happen to the rotation of the earth if mass was pulled inward? Think about a figure skater. If you guys know some of you martial artists, think about Old Style 2 in, in Aikido. What happens when I want to pull my opponent toward me? Rotation. I speed up. Speed up. Figure skaters spinning around, they pull themselves in and they spin faster. When all that mass is pulled inward, the world's rotation would have sped up. And so a 360 day rotation, no year, orderly, would have sped up to what we see today. And there's evidence that the earth's axis slows down about 0.05 seconds per year. Not 0.05, it would be 0.005 seconds per calendar year. Okay? And what this means is that since the flood increased that speed, about 4000 BC, that it has since slowed down about 22 seconds. It's going back to where God created it to be. Do you realize if we backwards extrapolated the measurable rotational speed of the earth at the equator, which is about 1,000 miles per hour, if we backwards extrapolated that 0.005 seconds per year going back 4.6 billion, what the evolutionist says is the age of the earth, the earth would have been spinning more than double or double its speed now. What happens when centrifugal force doubles? Maybe the earth was shaped like an egg. <laughs> but the continents would have been pulled or, or pushed toward the equator. And things couldn't exist as they did today. The earth would have been flattened. But I believe that this 360 day year was actual. And after the flood, things changed. Lots of things changed after the flood. The age of people changed. The greenhouse was gone. You had UV light from the sun that wasn't filtered anymore. As a result, age decreased. Dinosaurs went away. Why? What are dinosaurs? They were called dragons before the 20th century, but oversized reptiles. Reptiles, do you realize, guys, reptiles never stop growing? That's what they do their whole life. They grow, and then they die. 
Well, if their lifespan had been significantly decreased after the flood, they wouldn't get as big as they were before the flood. I mean, I believe Noah took dinosaurs on the ark. The book of Job describes a dinosaur, the behemoth. Its description there is just like what we come to understand a brontosaurus to be. Please understand that dinosaur descriptions you see in the museums are based upon lots of presumptions. You know, they'll find one or two little bones and construct a whole dinosaur out of it. See, if they can make us think the earth is so old, they can make us think there's no God. When there's plenty of observable evidence to say otherwise, and I don't want to get into that today. But I believe this was an actual year, and from the flood forward, ancient cultures always dated their calendars based upon the sun. Now, I'm not talking about a solar calendar. They used lunar calendars. You know, the Jews had a lunar calendar based upon the moon, but it took into account the 365.242199 solar rotation because every few years they had to insert an extra month to make the season, it catch up with the seasons. If you used a straight up 360 day year in your calendar today, given enough time, the seasons would drift to where you'd be celebrating Christmas in the summertime because it drifts. And so there's no reason in this prophecy, I believe, to try to come up with some prophetic year. This was an actual year. I believe when Jesus Christ come back, comes back and sets up a kingdom here on earth, that all these things will change. The curse will be removed and we'll go back to a 360 day year during that millennial reign of Christ. And I think indications of that are in Revelation where God counts Antichrist reign, not from an earthly 365-day year, but from a 360-day year. So these were actual years, and I think that Anderson errs when he claims that we have to figure Daniel's 70 weeks of years in terms of 360-day prophetic years. That's a problem. So I explain that down here at the bottom, but I've, I've gone through and I've shown you how Anderson multiplies 483 times 360 days, and that gives you a certain amount of days. If you take those days and divide it by a solar year, you have 476 years, not 483. So if you date 476 years from 445 B.C., you come to A.D. 32, which is more realistic in terms of Jesus Christ. Of course, Anderson does with Tiberius, the Roman emperor, the same thing he does with Artaxerxes. He doesn't take into account a co-regency, and so his dates for Jesus are off as well. I explain all of this here Feel free to look at it. Anderson takes into account the 476 years. He has to add 24 days to account for the difference from March 14th to April 6th. He has to take into account leap years. says if you, if you divide um, uh, 476 year, calendar years, which he says are 483 uh, prophetic years, if you divide that by four, actually that's... What does that come up with? How many times? How many times is four? Huh? Four into four seventy-six. Hundred nineteen. So he says, "Okay, we had hundred nineteen leap years, so we've got to add an extra day. So we got to throw that together. So you've got. I don't want to. This is all mapped out here, and I know I'm confusing the mess out of you all. But try to look at it and see where the problem is." He says, well, 119 leap years, well, what happens in our calendar today? This is where we got a little confused last week. 
What happens in our calendar today? Every four years is a leap year, right? That means we add an extra day to what month? Does this happen every four years? No. When do we not take a year that's divided by four and add an extra day? It's not been in our lifetime. If a year ends in double zero, it's divisible by four, but not divisible by 400. It's not a leap year. Did you know that? Did you know that January, I mean, did you know that 1700, 1800, and 1900, although they're divisible by four, were not leap years. There were only 28 days in February. But 2000 had a February 29th. Why? It's divisible by four and divisible by 400. So Anderson said, okay, during, from 445 B.C. to 32 A.D., you had B.C. 300, you had B.C. 200, and you had B.C. 100. These were not divisible by 400, so they were not leap years. Therefore, you've got to subtract three and you come up with 116 days. And so when you take his 360 days times 483, and you add to that the 24 days between the 1st of Nisan and the 10th of Nisan, 1st of Nisan in 454 B.C. would have been different than the 1st of Nisan in 32 A.D. because of the, inter, because of the lunar calendar and intercalary month. And then you add together 116. What he comes up with is exactly 173,880 days, which is exactly 483 uh, um, times 360. So you come up with the same day and he says, look, 69 weeks were fulfilled to the very day in prophetic years. Okay? Does that make sense? If you go back and read it, you'll understand. I'm trying to summarize what I've written down here. Uh, so if you have this handout, you're going to understand as opposed to maybe somebody listening online and I, I apologize for that. But this is a standard conclusion he comes up with the same number of days between 45 B.C. and A.D. 30 that would, have been four, that would have been 69 weeks of 360 day years. Okay, That is the standard interpretation. And as a result, you can look at the Bible and say, wow, this was fulfilled exactly. Anderson believed this prophecy needed to be exact. I agree with that. He believed we could trust it. I agree with that. But I think by taking the prophetic year and misapplying it, he came up with a conclusion that's not accurate. I don't think we have to do that. Just like in the New Testament, the word baptizo means to baptize. Obviously, it means to immerse in water. That's why we baptize by immersion, not sprinkling. But the word has a greater meaning than just water baptism. It also speaks about a spiritual baptism. And that's why we teach. That's why we read context. It's wrong to translate baptizo as to dip or to immerse. Because baptism also has a spiritual connotation. We need to translate it baptized. And then the context shows that it means immerse. You might have well, inten well intentions to retranslate that word so you can teach believers baptism by immersion. But we don't need to change the word. The context is clear. And I think that's taken a step and making the Scriptures say something they don't. And then what happens is you get rid of the spiritual connotation of baptism. Baptism by the Holy Spirit. Every reference to baptism in the New Testament is not talking about water baptism. So we're wrong to translate that word immerse even though it means that. Okay? There are lots of words in the English language that have various definitions. 
Okay? When we go from one language to another, we need to be careful about translating something with a word that can only apply to a singular definition. Because there's multiple de definitions and that's where context comes in. It is possible to accurately translate from one language to another. I do it all the time when I preach in Nepal. So anybody that tells you the Bible couldn't have been preserved because it's been translated in other languages obviously doesn't know how Wall Street works because if translation can't be accurate, the world financial system wouldn't work. Nations would misinterpret UN treaties and probably start wars when they've decided not to because the UN has to translate everything it does. And so that's ridiculous. Accurate translation can take place. So anyway, there's some problems with Sir Robert Anderson's interpretation. Number one, the prophetic year. I've already demonstrated how that's a problem. I wanted to talk a minute about his leap years. This is very interesting because I think most of you all don't know this. In terms of our calendar, you don't maybe understand where our calendar comes from. Robert Anderson said, well, 483 prophetic years equals 476 solar years. And so if you divide 476 divided by 4, you get 119 leap years. And then he subtracted 3 for BC, I mean for 300, 200, and 100 BC and came up with 116 days to add to the total to make it equal the prophetic years in terms of days. Now this is interesting because this rule we observe here with the calendar is something that did not start being observed until, fifth, until the 1500s, 1582. Prior to that, the, the calendar being used did not use this rule. They just created a leap year every four years. So I, I thought you might find it interesting that how our calendar came into be. What's the, what type of calendar do we use nowadays? What is it called? The Gregorian calendar. The Gregorian calendar was introduced in 1582 by Pope Gregory of the Roman Catholic Church. Catholicism is not Christianity, by the way. But in 1582, the Gregorian calendar was introduced. Prior to that, the world used, or the civilized world used, what was called the Julian calendar. It was a solar calendar. The world and, 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 and people throughout history have acknowledged a solar year, but up until the days of Julius Caesar, everybody used a lunar calendar. A lunar calendar doesn't mean a lunar year. They acknowledged a solar year, and therefore the calendar had to be adjusted every so often to keep it in line with the seasons. But in 45 B.C., Julius Caesar... abolished the lunar calendar for the Roman Empire and introduced a solar calendar that would be regulated by the sun. So before that, the year was regulated by the sun, the calendar regulated by the moon. Julius Caesar decided to get rid of this extra month every so often and let both the year and the calendar be regulated by the sun. And so from 45 B.C., the Romans introduced a calendar whereby you had three years of 365 days and the fourth year would be 366 days. So you would have a leap year every four years. Okay? 
That meant that a year in the Julian calendar would be 365.25 days. Who knows what the actual year is? 365.242199 is the actual solar year. Now, I round up that last nine because it goes out kind of like this. But the Julian calendar was actually longer than the real year. It's impossible to make it exact. In fact, the Julian calendar, a 365.25 day year, was actually 11 minutes and 14 seconds longer than the real solar calendar. That means, using this approximation, every 128 years you would have a day error. There would be, it would be a day off in terms of the seasons every 128 years. Now that wasn't a big deal in B.C. 445. But after enough time it becomes a problem because the seasons start drifting. The Julian calendar in 45 B.C. was started and in order to realign the calendar with the seasons, 45 B.C. was called by the Romans the year of confusion. The reason why is they added 45 days to the calendar. Okay? The year of confusion. It was, it was not 45 days, it was 445 days. So BC, 45 B.C. was 445 days long to align it with the, the seasons. So it was called the year of confusion. And then 44 B.C. all the way until the time of Pope Gregory, each year was 365 days every three years, and then the fourth year would be a leap year, February 29th. This was a great improvement over the lunar calendars, but it wasn't completely accurate. And so by the time of Pope Gregory in the 1500s, the seasons had started drifting. The seasons had started drifting. So what happened was the introduction of the Gregorian calendar. And that's what we use today. The Gregorian calendar, instead of a... The Julian was 365.25. Okay? The Gregorian calendar was 365.2425. Okay? Now remember, the mean solar year is 365.242199. So the Gregorian calendar was a step in the right direction. Instead of being 11 minutes and 14 seconds longer than the, than the solar rotation of the earth, it was only 26 seconds longer. Okay? So well, how does the Gregorian calendar work? In 1582, things had drifted 10 days from 45 B.C. in terms of the season. Now when it comes to harvesting and stuff, that can be a big difference. Create confusion. So 10 days were added to 1582 A.D. And so October the 4th, 1582, immediately became, was followed not by October the 5th, but it was followed by October the 15th. So, according to the Gregorian calendar, there was no October 5th through October 14th, 1582. The 4th was followed by the 15th. Ten days were added, and then a rule was added to the leap year. The Julian calendar said every four years, we'll have an extra day. It's a leap year. The Gregorian calendar kept that, but it added a second rule. If you have a year that ends in double zero, not divisible by 400, that's not a leap year. So from 1582 until now, 1700, 
1800 and 1900. They were divisible by four and they would have been a leap year according to the Julian calendar, but they weren't divisible by 400 and so they would not have been a leap year. There would not have been a February 29th according to this Gregorian calendar. 2000 was. We had a February 29th in 2000, but there was no February 29th, 1900. The Gregorian year is 26 seconds longer than the solar year. The Julian calendar was 11 minutes and 14 seconds longer. So instead of there being a day error every 128 years, there's a day error only every 3,000 years. And so it fixed the problem, at least for our lifetime and lifetimes of others to come if the Lord tarries. But it's still not exact. When the Gregorian calendar was introduced in 1582, it was very slow in being accepted. Mostly the Roman Catholic countries accepted it. The American colonies did not change over to the Gregorian calendar until 1752. That's when the American colonies switched over everything. So, September the 2nd, 1752 in American history was followed by September the 14th. So there was no September the 3rd all the way up through September the 13th in 1752. George Washington was actually born on February 11th, 1732. But do we celebrate his birthday on the 11th? Oh, what day is it? 22nd. He was born on February 11th because in 1732, the colonies used the Julian calendar. If you ever see this date with the word OS in parentheses in a history book, that means old style, Julian calendar. When you added the necessary days according to our present calendar, he would have been born on February 22nd. But on the actual day when the midwife announced you've had a son in 1732, it would have been February 11th. Here's what happens. Ten days were added to the calendar in 1582. And you would have done this all the way up till 1700 if you wanted to determine the difference between the Julian and the Gregorian calendar. From March 1st, 1700 to February 28th of 1800, you'd have to add 11 days. Okay? From March 1st, 1800 to February 28th, 1900, you'd have to add 12 days to account for the difference. From March 1st, 1900 to February 28th, 2000, you'd have to add 13 days. Okay? So in George Washington times, it was an 11-day difference. Today, it's a 14-day difference between our calendar and the Julian calendar. The Eastern Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Romanian Orthodox Church, they still use the Julian calendar. So in this century, there's a 14-day difference. In 2008, January the 9th, I flew to Romania. January the 9th, 2008. When I got there, I found it very strange that there were Christmas trees up and people were still talking about Christmas. Christmas had been celebrated in Romania the day before I landed in Bucharest. Christmas was January 8th, 2008. Why? Because they used the Julian calendar. It was 14 days after our December 25th. Last, week, uh, last weekend, Jamie and I went to a concert at Old St. Paul's Church of a Russian choir. It was on Saturday. The man stood up and said, Happy Easter to everybody. Because he was thinking Easter was last Sunday. 
Well, in his mind, he was from the Orthodox Church. He was using the Julian calendar. And it was like, sir, tomorrow, according to our calendar, Easter was two weeks ago. So it was kind of an interesting thing. So there would not have been a hundred... Um, there, there, would, there would have been 119 leap years according to Anderson's dates. Not 116 because this double zero year rule didn't come into effect until 1582. So he made a mistake there in coming up with 116 leap years. It really is 119. Therefore, what he said, 10 Nisan AD 32 was not a Palm Sunday. It was a Wednesday, April the 9th. Not Sunday, April the 6th. And so that leap year thing is a problem. It's a problem. So this is where that, that interpretation doesn't stand up. Man, this is... Okay, I'm, I'm alright for now. There's another problem with this interpretation that's accepted by conservatives. The 20th year of Artaxerxes. Most history books would call this 445 B.C., because Artaxerxes came to the throne as the sole king of Persia in 465 B.C. So 20 years later would have been 445 B.C. Okay? 465 would have been his accession year. 464 would have been his first year. 445 inclusively would have been his 20th year. If you date this prophecy from 445 B.C., you either come up too late for Christ or you have to change the years to prophetic years and then it doesn't work. Was the 20th year of Artaxerxes 445 B.C.? When did he come to the throne? Well, secular history in terms of this period is based on everybody worships this like it's absolute truth. It's called Ptolemy's Canon. Okay, anybody ever heard of that in history class? Ptolemy's Canon is a historical work. Ptolemy was an astronomer that lived from about A.D. 90. He was born around the time John the Apostle was living his last days. He lived until A.D. 168. He was an astronomer and a mathematician. He taught that the earth was the center of the universe. But one of his works was what's called a list of kings, the king's list. And what Ptolemy did is he wrote this long list of kings going all the way back through uh, Rome, uh, Greece, Persia, Babylon, the Assyrian kings. And he listed the kings that ruled their kingdoms in history all the way back in years. And he would basically put a king's name followed by a number of years that he reigned. The successor's name, number of years that he reigned. And according to this king's list, the 20th year of Artaxerxes would have been 445 B.C. However, what Ptolemy's list does not do is it doesn't account for co-regencies where the Father and the Son reign together. It doesn't account for gaps where there was civil war in kingdoms. And sometimes there were several years before it was sorted out. It doesn't take into account other things. And when it comes to older history, like Assyria's history and Babylon's history, Ptolemy's canon has some real problems that don't agree with the archaeological evidence. And But it's funny, when people want to disprove the Bible, they act like this thing is without error. But when they want to make a point somewhere else, they say it's got problems. People always want to make things say what they want it to say, even though the evidence is other. However, there's an older source than Ptolemy's canon that talks about 
the reigns of Persian kings. Anybody ever heard of a man named James Usher? James Usher was an archbishop in the Church of England in the 1600s. And in 1650, he wrote an amazing book called The Annals of the World, in which he used a lot of ancient historians and sources to come up with a timeline or chronology of the earth. James Usher was famous for indicating that 4004 B.C. would have been the date of the creation of the world based upon the biblical calendar and the biblical chronology. I believe this to be true, by the way. That may shock some of you. I believe that science shows it to be true in many places. We can talk about that elsewhere. But James Usher dated creation for around 4004 B.C. He used some sources that were contemporaneous with King Artaxerxes, and he claimed that Artaxerxes came to the throne not in 445 B.C., but in 473 B.C., and that his 20th year would have been 454 B.C. Okay, actually, sorry. Yeah, 473. He would have ascended to the throne in 474. 473 would have been his first year. The 20th year would have been 454 B.C. And so, the prophecy in Daniel would be dated from here. Okay? That is how many years difference from Usher, I mean Anderson's conclusion. It's only nine years. We're not talking about huge periods of time here. But where the prophecy is concerned, it's significant. Now, some of these sources that he used are interesting because, number one, they were contemporaneous. They were Greeks that lived at the time that Artaxerxes was on the throne. And what I find interesting is that there was something very significant that happened in human history during this time that had already been prophesied by Daniel and it changed the history of the world. When things happen in history, more often than not, what we think is insignificant, particularly in the moment it happens, can often prove to be very significant and completely change the course of human history. There was an old drunk that was serving in the Union Army that finally had enough and says, I quit and go home. Had enough. I'm not serving anymore. I'm going home. He had a buddy that came to him and said, get off your butt, clean it up, throw away the bottle, and get back in this army. We need you. Don't be a wimp. No one knew at the time that this buddy was talking to a man named Ulysses S. Grant who quit the army, was a drunk. And because he listened to his buddy, he got back in. And before you knew it, he was appointed general of the Union Armies. He was the only one that was ever able to defeat Robert E. Lee. He never defeated Lee. Lee always defeated him in battle, but Lee ran out of troops. So that seemed insignificant, but it changed the history of the Civil War. And some of those things happened during this time. And so, man, I'm just very slowly plodding through this. I'm sorry for that. I might have confused some people. But I want to talk next week about this period in history because Artaxerxes comes to the throne while his father is still alive. And his father had been involved in a humiliating defeat at the hands of the Greeks that actually ends up being one of the, one of the, most, one of the, one of the key battles in all of human history. This defeat at the hand of the Greeks changed the course of human history. If it hadn't happened, we may not have Western civilization today. The Persians were not able to conquer Europe. And as a result, Europe would develop from Greek culture 
the Roman Empire, and out of that would come Western civilization. And we, we enjoy the fruits of that today. And so it's an amazing uh, account of the Battle of Salamis, and this battle is what caused Artaxerxes to have to eventually come to the throne and take over for his father. The Jews began to deal with him, and therefore we can date his 20th year actually earlier than Anderson's conclusion and we don't have to use prophetic years. If you start dating from 454 and use a mean solar year, you're going to see that Christ wasn't crucified in AD 30. He was crucified, in, I mean, AD 32. He was crucified in AD 30. This agrees with countless other scriptures, and it was exactly 69 weeks of years, not 360 day years, but 365.242199, etc. years. So I'd like to get into that, but before I do, I want to end with this. War in human history, as we study the history, military history and wars, we can see divine providence very clearly. People want to deny the existence of God. We've got the Word of God. It reveals God. But history does as well. And we're willfully ignorant if we throw these things out the window. That's why some refer to history as His story. God's plans and purposes for the world as prophesied in Scripture is fulfilled in history. And war and military history, we can go back and study and we can see the hand of God. It's amazing. Little seemingly insignificant battles change the course of human history. I've heard it said that war is God's judgment here on earth. Hell is God's judgment after earth. And there's some truth there. Nowhere is the divine hand of providence more evident than in war and battle. And oftentimes, seemingly insignificant battles change the course of human history. That's what happened in the days of Xerxes. That's what put Artaxerxes on the throne earlier than is commonly accepted. And that's what initiated the start of God's prophetic clock in the 70 weeks. But I wanted to end with a little military history. Robert served in the military. He was in the Army Rangers. Thanks for your service, by the way. But something happened that was seemingly insignificant in the year 1755. It's an example of what I believe is God's providence. On July 9th, 1755, there was a war raging here in North America. Who knows what that war was? Anybody? 1755. I'm expecting you to answer. French and Indian War. The war between the British and the French who teamed up with a lot of the different Indian tribes. The British would win the French and Indian War and it would establish the British as the powerhouse here in the 13 colonies. And then as a result, out of that would be born the United States. July 9, 1755, 2,000 British troops under General Braddock were ambushed by 800 French and Indian guerrillas at Fort Duquesne. Fort Duquesne is modern-day Pittsburgh, near the mouth of those rivers. 714 soldiers and 63 out of 86 officers were, British officers were killed or wounded in this battle, including General Braddock himself. He was very arrogant, and he refused to take his troops off the field of battle where the British would stand there in a line, they would load their guns, and they would all fire together. And that was considered the honorable thing to do. And yet the French and the Indians were in the trees ambushing him and just taking him out. It was a turkey shoot. And his pride wouldn't allow his men to digress from their formations and fight 
on that same level. But Braddock was killed. He was shot through the lung. Braddock had a, uh, a young man that carried orders for him running back and forth between the officers during the battle. He was only 23 years old at the time. Anybody have any idea who that was? Seemingly insignificant person in 1755 was Colonel George Washington. 23 years old. During the battle, George Washington was fever-ridden. He was sick, had a high fever. He carried uh, Braddock's orders throughout the battle, back and forth, back and forth. Here's how Washington himself described that battle. George Washington, father of our country. An eyewitness said, I expected every moment, moment to see him or Washington fall. Nothing but the superintending hand or care of providence could have saved him. John, uh, George Washington later wrote a letter to his brother and he wrote these words about this battle. As I have heard since my arrival at this place, a circumstantial account of my death and dying speech. I take this early opportunity of contradicting the first, in other words, I'm not dead, and of assuring you that I have not yet composed my dying speech. But, by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat, two horses were shot under me, and yet I escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. Washington was one of the just small handful that survived that battle. He had horses shot out from under him. His coat was shot several times. And yet they couldn't touch him. Later, truth is often stranger than fiction, by the way. Fifteen years later, 1770, George Washington and one of his close friends, Dr. Craik, were traveling near the junction of the great Kanawha and Ohio rivers when a company of Indians approached them in the woods with great reverence. Speaking through an interpreter, this is what the aged chieftain said to Washington and this Dr. Craik. He said, I am the chief and ruler over my tribes. My influence extends to the waters of the Great Lakes and to the far blue mountains. I have traveled a long and weary path that I might see the young warrior of the great battle. It was on the day when the white man's blood mixed with the streams of our forest that I first beheld this chief. He's talking about the Battle of Fort Duquesne. I called to my young man and I said, Quick, let your aim be certain. Make sure that he dies. Our rifles were leveled. Rifles which but for you knew not how to miss. It was all in vain. A power mightier far than we shielded you, sir. Seeing you were under the special guardianship of the Great Spirit, we immediately ceased to fire at you. I am now old and soon shall be gathered to the great council fire of my fathers in the land of shades. But ere I go, there is something bids me speak in the voice of prophecy. Listen. He's talking to Dr. Craig. The Great Spirit protects that man. And he was pointing to George Washington sitting there. And he guides his destinies. He will become a chief of nations. And a people yet unborn will hail him as the founder of a mighty empire. I am come to pay homage to the man who is the particular favorite of heaven and who can never die in battle. Interesting, huh? 
That's a story you won't hear in the history books. You know, God supposedly was not a part of America and our founding fathers didn't believe in God. This is an account from the life of Washington where he was amazingly spared in a battle. Why? God had a purpose for him and would use him years later in the Revolutionary War and the establishment of our country. And what did this George Washington warn the people of America during his farewell address? And in his years as president, he warned of a day when America would come to a place where it forgot not only that freedom is a gift from God, but forgot the God of our fathers. George Washington was baptized by a Baptist preacher in an icy river. I believe he gave one of his officers swords to this Baptist preacher and it was preserved for years in that family. But he was baptized in a river, gave his heart to Christ, and it was the same George Washington who said this, and I quote, you cannot rightly govern the world without God in the Bible. So I laughed in my spirit a couple weeks ago when Matthew and I went to this atheist gathering in downtown Hickory. They had a banner up uh, proclaiming atheism and it had the pictures of three men on there. Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington. And I thought about the letters that Ben Franklin wrote that preacher, George Whitfield, in the last years of his life where Franklin said, oh, I wish we could move to the Ohio Valley and you and I together could spend our last days taking the gospel to the Indians. Interesting. Thomas Jefferson prayed for the nation as president and he prayed in a way that would bring problems today. He prayed in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Washington, I could go on and on. Read Washington's journals. They speak of his relationship with God and Jesus Christ. So it's amazing how people try to rewrite history. But history shows God's divine providence. And next week we'll talk about how a similar providence led to putting Artaxerxes on the throne and therefore Nehemiah could ask permission to return and rebuild Jerusalem. The command was given and the 70 weeks started ticking. And if God does it this way in the past, He'll do it this way in the future. And we can trust everything to come to pass exactly as it is written. Again, I'm sorry I've run over and I know this is like a seminary class and I'm sorry. But I want you to have confidence in the Word of God. Have confidence.